Good morning, everyone. Let me ask you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. I want to begin this morning by just reading through the scripture that we'll be looking at together so that you'll be able to have it in your mind and in your heart while we uh, start, and then we'll go back and examine parts of it as we go on. But it's Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 10. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. We could spend probably a year on these verses, but we're going to do them in one week for now. Paul writing to us about our condition in Christ and before we knew Christ. This is Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There was a, a phase of, uh, of preaching where, where preachers over the last 20, 30 years, especially back in the 80s and 90s, I remember, would, would do a lot of illustrating from movies and TV shows and books and, and just a lot of uh, popular entertainment themes and, and use those in their messages. And it's become really difficult to do that. I used to do that. I used to even show video clips occasionally in, in, as part of the sermon, but you just can't, you can't do it anymore, really, and, and it's not because there aren't good illustrations out there or because all entertainment is not appropriate or whatever, but it's really because nobody watches the same stuff anymore. Have you noticed that? There's just, you're subscribed to this channel or that channel, and people are getting their, their entertainment content off the internet or on, you know, or broadcast TV, still a few people, or, you know, they, people go different places for for um, entertainment, and so there are very few things we have in common in our culture when it comes to that sort of material. You might get away with like a Disney reference once in a while, you know, or Star Wars maybe. Uh, but even then you're going to have some people who have no clue what you're referring to. And yet there, there's one literary work that I know that almost all of you are familiar with, not because you've read the original book, but because it has been reproduced so many times in movies and in plays and even in cartoons. I know that I myself have read um, about two and a half books by Charles Dickens in my lifetime. In fact, it was all back in high school, and it was because I had to read them. Um, but, but I never actually got around to reading A Christmas Carol. But if you're like me, you have seen at least the movies, right? Um, by the way, the Muppet one is the best one, just so you that That's a really well done. It really is really well done. Uh, but whether it's Albert Finney or Michael Caine or... Bill Murray, um, playing the title role. You are somewhat familiar, right, with Ebenezer Scrooge. 
We all know who that person is, pretty much. Scrooge, of course, is a banker. He is a notorious miser. He is a very harsh and greedy man who is owned by his money. And one year at Christmas time, he receives a series of dreams or visions. Uh, the first thing he sees is the ghost of his deceased partner, Jacob Marley, who is suffering in the afterlife for all of his greed and callousness during his life on earth. And then, of course, after that, he meets three ghosts who give him a tour of his past and then his present and then his potential future. And after this horrifying series of visions, Scrooge wakes up on Christmas morning and he is a, a completely changed man, full of generosity and good cheer. And in the true spirit of Christmas, his life is completely turned around. That's the story. And make no mistake, a Christmas carol is a salvation story. It is. It is pretty clear when we encounter Jacob Marley in chains that he is suffering some kind of ongoing torment in the afterlife. And it's understood that in order for Scrooge to avoid this fate, he's going to need to change his ways while there's still time for him. Now, we are in the middle of a series that I have called Angles on the Gospel, Angles on the Gospel, which we're looking at the salvation story. We're looking at the gospel of Jesus Christ from different perspectives to see different aspects of it. And I want to look this morning at a particular angle, and you could even call it maybe the Ebenezer Scrooge angle, okay? We're going to call this sermon, How to Change Your Ways. How to Change Your Ways. Now, when I say that, there are probably some some red and yellow lights glowing in some of your minds when you hear something like that, right? If that's the title of the sermon, there's a little bit of an alarm going off. Ooga, 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 this is not a drill. What is he going to say? Because if you have any familiarity with God's Word, or if you have, have spent any length of time, paid any attention at all to even a small sliver of what we teach at First Alliance Church, you know that salvation is not simply a matter of changing your ways. I mean, a Christian is not somebody who wakes up one morning and decides to turn over a new leaf and be converted from a bad guy to a good guy. A Christian is not somebody who spends his life trying to accumulate enough credit from good deeds and trying to avoid the, all the demerits that come from bad deeds so that on judgment day, hopefully he'll end up you know, on the right side of the ledger. That's not a Christian. Would you agree? All right, so true enough. We can say this. A Christian is not merely someone who is living a changed life. However, a Christian is, in fact, living a changed life. And that is true, by the way, of every Christian. Without a changed life, there is no salvation at all in the picture. Without a changed life, there is no salvation. Now, as we look through this passage in Ephesians, I want you to notice a particular word that occurs in both the very beginning and then again at the very end. It occurs right at the beginning of verse 2, and then it occurs again toward the end of verse 10. Very important word. It's the word walk. Walk. Paul is showing us here that there are two ways to walk. And this morning, it's very simple. What I want to do is I want to look with you at the wrong way to walk, and then we'll look at the right way to walk, and then at the end we'll look at how to change from the wrong way to the right way. Okay, so the wrong way to walk, and then we'll talk about the right way to walk, and then we'll talk about how to switch from one to the other. So first, let's look, before we do that, let's just look for a second at this word walk. Because walk is obviously a figure of speech, right? It means something different than just moving along and, and your legs propelling you in a certain direction. We know that's what walking means, but this is something else, right? This is deeper. Sometimes the Christian life, uh, you know this, is pictured as a path. 
a path that is leading to eternal life in contrast with maybe another path that is going in the other direction leading to eternal destruction. And that's a very valid biblical metaphor. Jesus uses this several times. He uses it very famously in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about entering at the narrow gate instead of the wide gate and taking the narrow, tough road rather than the easy, wide road. So the question becomes, which path are we walking? And it's important for us to understand that. And the passage that we just read in Ephesians is certainly related to that, but it's a little different. The Greek word here that is translated walk means to walk around, to walk around. Not to walk around an obstacle to get around it, but just to walk around. Uh, To walk around in circles maybe, to walk around your yard, to walk around maybe a, a track or something like that. And so with this word, it's not really the destination that's in view so much as the course you're on. How and where are you walking around? Your walk, in this case, then, is is really your way of life. It's your way of life. When we see this word walk, used this way in the New Testament, that's what it means. It's the pattern of your life. It's your habits. It's, It's your tendencies. It's your actions. It's your thoughts. It's how your mind works. It's what you are aiming for in your life. It's the goals that you have. It's the purpose of your life. It's how you conduct the relationships with other people on a day-to-day basis. It's what, make, it's what makes you tick. All of, all of that is wrapped up in this word walk. You can define it as the pattern of your everyday life. The pattern of your everyday life. That's what Paul's talking about here. And verses 1 to 3 describe the wrong pattern, the wrong way to live, the wrong way to walk. Um, the English Standard Version, the ESV that I just read to you, uses a very interesting word in verse 2. It's the word, I haven't seen it in any other um, translations, but it's the word course course. Paul says we're following the course of this world. And then he also says after that that we're following the prince of the power of the air, which is clearly a reference to Satan. And this word course, it's actually a very difficult word to translate because it literally means age. So when you read it in Greek, it says the age of this world. Paul is talking here about the pattern of the age, the pattern of the age. But I don't think choice is a bad word. In fact, I think it's probably the right word to use here. This, this past week, Wednesday, Uh, we were in prayer meeting, and someone asked this question. He said, we know that God has a plan for our lives, right? But then he said, is it true that the devil also has a plan for our lives? And that's kind of a scary question. But I think that Paul is saying here, in a manner of speaking, yes. Yes, Satan does have a plan for your life. And Satan's plan for your life is, quite literally, to put you and keep you in a death spiral, in a death spiral. Living out the spiritual death that Paul describes and mentions here in verse 1. Dead in our trespasses and sins. What's happening is Satan, Satan is exerting a powerful influence in this world over what we might call the spirit of the age. The spirit of the age. And through that spirit, Satan preaches to us that we need to follow the way that he has laid out for us, the the course that he has designed for us. And whatever we're doing in life, Satan wants us walking around on that course to keep us going round and round on that particular merry-go-round that he has designed for us, carries us deeper and deeper into ourselves and takes us farther and farther away from the life of God. And yes, I said into ourselves because that's where the, the path leads. In verse 3, Paul describes the wrong way of living here as what you probably call a self-obsessed life. We become slaves 
to our passions and desires. We do whatever our fallen hearts tell us to do, whatever we think will make us happy and give us pleasure and give us satisfaction at any given time. The wrong way of life here, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, the wrong way of life, the course that Satan has laid out for us is a life that is lived purely for oneself. Purely for oneself. It may be lived to accumulate wealth or, or achieve financial security like Ebenezer Scrooge wanted so badly. He was a slave to his money. It might be lived for pleasure, sexual or otherwise. Effectively, you're a slave to your appetites. It might be lived for fame and reputation or popularity, in which case you become a slave to what other people think of you. It might be lived in pursuit of the good life, of rest and relaxation and, and entertainment. In fact, in fact, it might not be lived for any of those things, but it might be lived in pursuit of merit badges and for good deeds and religious activity so that we'll feel good about ourselves and take pride in our own righteousness. I want you to notice here that Paul is not just speaking to formerly godless Gentiles, he's speaking to religious Jews as well as those Gentiles. And he even lumps himself in together with them in verse 3. Did you notice that? Paul was no libertine. The Apostle Paul, before he knew Jesus, he was living what everyone would have agreed was a very moral and upright and religiously careful life. But that didn't matter. That didn't matter at all. He says, all of us, verse 3, all of us were into this. All of us were doing this, he says, living a self-centered life. We were all a slave to something. You may not think about it this way, but in one sense, our culture today, as messed up as it is, has done us a huge favor because it has made this so obvious. It's impossible to miss, right? It really has. We... Our culture today, and, and uh, to some extent we all probably have participated in this, but our culture has turned selfishness into an art form. Think about it. In the spirit of our age, narcissism, you know, completely being self-absorbed, is now a virtue. It really is. Maybe even the ultimate virtue for some people. The goal and pattern of life that we, that we get today prescribed to us, for us, by most of the places that we get our information from the mass culture, the goal and pattern of life is self-realization, self-actualization, especially self-expression, right? To find out who you are, what the real you is, and then to express that real you. And nobody, but nobody has the right to tell you what is wrong with that, and if they do, they're being hateful and intolerant and shaming you for who you are. I heard part of an interview with a really famous actress the other day, and she was describing her journey, which has led her into astrology and witchcraft, along with some other things, and she described all of this as a way of self-partnering, self-partnering. And by that, I understand what she means is learning how to love herself. That's her goal, to learn to love herself, to self-partner. About a month ago, I read uh, about a lady, I read an article about a lady who had a big wedding celebration in which she actually married herself. And I'm thinking, what would it be like to marry myself? <laughs> we would both need a lot of counseling right away. <laughs> now, this may sound like the extreme, and yeah, it is at this point for now, but, but the more the more the more the spirit of our age embraces any and all forms of self-expression, no matter how outlandish these things might look, the more our culture is becoming a caricature of itself. 
And the more its brokenness is standing out in sharp relief, it's impossible to miss. That's what I mean by doing us a favor. You can't miss this. When we point out these extremes, it isn't, listen, it isn't primarily to make fun of them. They almost make fun of themselves sometimes, I realize that, but it isn't to do that, and it isn't to demonize the people that are sadly caught up in these things, but it is to say, hey, look, this is where we are logically headed. This is where we're going. This is the absurdity, this is the meaninglessness, this is the desperate sadness and brokenness that logically results from the course that Satan would set for us to walk around in during our lives, which is the course of self-love, self-expression, and ultimately self-worship. Now, so far I'm preaching to the choir, right? Most of us are not living that extreme, right? We're not marrying ourselves, but we may still be living for ourselves, and there are many other more socially acceptable ways to live for yourself, right? When you have encounters with other people, it's still easy to treat those encounters as a way to impress them or to demonstrate your superiority over them or to, to build up your reputation in some way. Some of us might still walk into a room full of people, sometimes wondering what they all think of us, and that's the main thing in our minds. Many of us guard our insecurities and our faults behind a mask of just peacefulness and dignity. We find that we still have to prove ourselves to all the people around us, to prove ourselves worthy so that everybody will know one way or another that we have the right stuff. We still hang on to our pride, our privileges, our rights, our material resources so tightly. And if we give any of them away, it's mostly to feel good about ourselves. It's perfectly acceptable to live that way today. But Ephesians 2 says it's not the right way to live. So what is the right way? What is the right way? Skip to the end of the passage for now and you'll find the right way to walk. It's Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Same word. Okay, same word for walk, but I also want to look at this word that means that the word that's translated good, the good works. There are a couple different words in Greek that are translated good. One of them has to do with what we might call moral uprightness of character. The other has to do with beneficence. It has to do with generosity. It has to do with goodness in the sense of an act of goodness, doing good for others. It's the second word that's used here. So this is not these good works are not being good and avoiding sinful behavior and therefore being kind of a pure, moral, good person. No, this is about active goodness. This is about kindness. This is about acting for the good of other people, actually doing things. And the verse tells us that God has prepared a whole bunch of good works for us to do before we ever even encounter them. In other words, there is now a new course. There is now a new course that we can walk on, walk around on, a new plan we can follow, and we are called to actively walk around on this new path. Think about Ebenezer Scrooge again in the Christmas carol. When he wakes up from his dream on Christmas morning, what does he do? He gets up. He's so thrilled that, that, that all this stuff was just a dream. And he runs down the stairs, and he runs out into the street, and he's full of joy, and he starts looking around for someone to bless. And he gives gifts to the poor, and he gives his bookkeeper a big raise, and he buys the biggest turkey in town for this family, and he walks out onto the same street that he's lived on for so many years, but now he sees the people of his world in a completely different way. 
And that's really what happens when someone becomes a Christian. This new course that God has laid out for you, at least on the surface, it probably doesn't look a whole lot different from the old course. You know, you still, you still mostly do the same activities. You still, you still pretty much go to the same places. You still have the same routines. You still see the same people. Some of these people are seemingly pretty healthy and happy. Others are more obviously broken and messed up. Only now, as you look at these people, you see them a lot differently. You're no longer competing with and comparing yourself to the happy people and being envious of their happiness, and you're not you know, scrolling down your Facebook feed and muttering about all the good things that happened to them this week that didn't happen to you. Instead, you're rejoicing with them. You're no longer trying to, to distinguish yourself or, or differentiate yourself or separate yourself from the hurting people and the broken people to make sure that everyone knows that you're kind of above them and you're no longer trying to protect your self-image. You're no longer trying to guard your schedule so much. You're no longer trying to keep from getting sucked into the lives of the people around you because you're drawn to help them and encourage them. And then you drop your guard. Rather than looking at the world as a source of danger or a threat to your safety or your health or your happiness or your peace or your precious routine, now you're looking instead for all the opportunities out there to make a difference. Like, like Scrooge, you're looking for someone to bless. And now, rather than falling into the rut of the spirit of the age and falling into the habit of walking around in the devil's track for your life where all you do is serve yourself, now you're looking actively for ways to cancel Satan's influence and undo his activity in the lives of other people. That's what gets you out of bed in the morning now. Now, am I describing you? Is that, is that really the way you come down the stairs every morning of your life with that goal and with that mindset? Is that how you approach the day? All right. Maybe not, maybe sort of. Let's, let's look at the last question. We've seen the wrong way to approach life, what it looks like. Then we saw what the right way looks like. How, how do you change your ways? How do you change your ways? How do you start walking around differently? Well, we can probably, hopefully, expect to find the answer somewhere between Ephesians 2.3 and Ephesians 2.10, right? And that's exactly what we find. And Paul, in these verses, goes to great lengths over and over again to remind us that ultimately, we can't change our ways. We can't. We don't have the power or the spiritual fortitude to dig our way out of Satan's self-absorbing rut of our life and dive into God's beautiful pattern of, of kindness and generosity and love for others and blessing people. We are too broken. Selfishness is in our very bones. It's in our very nature. It just oozes out of us, which is why we find it so easy and natural to fall into Satan's trap and into the devil's pattern of life in the first place. But, verse 4, but something happens when we come to Christ. And yes, at the most basic level, we need to stress this. What happens, and what I called two weeks ago, the heart of the gospel is this. What happens is that we are justified. We are forgiven. We are declared innocent because of what Jesus did for us when he died in our place on the cross. And he rose from the dead to declare that we were innocent in God's sight. And we did nothing, Paul makes it very clear, we did nothing to earn this we did nothing to merit this. We can only receive it. And how do we receive it, Paul says? We receive it by faith. Faith is something you cannot take credit for by definition. What is faith? What is faith? I learned a song about that one time. 
I will spare you the singing, but I'll give you the words. Faith is just believing what God says He will do. He will never fail us. His promises are true. If we but receive Him, His children we become. Faith is just believing this wondrous thing is done. That's from Kids Club. My Kids Club when I was nine. But something else happens when we trust in Christ. Something that's a lot more mysterious and very powerful. Here's what else happens. We become, the Bible says, united with Christ. We become united with Jesus Christ. We have a union with Christ. Look at verse 5. God made us alive. What's the rest of that phrase? With Christ. We died with Christ, Romans 6 tells us. His death was our death, so we died with Him. We were then buried with Him, it says in Romans 6 also. But then we were raised with Him, it says here in Ephesians. And in fact, we're seated with Him right now in the heavenlies. His life is now our life. We're not just turning over a new leaf. We're living a whole new life with a whole new power and a whole new way of thinking. And where does that new power and that new way of thinking comes from? It comes from Jesus. Not just from listening to and understanding and obeying His teaching, although that's certainly part of it, but because Jesus is now living through us. He changes us from the inside out. One of the key phrases in the New Testament, in the whole Bible really, and really key in this book of Ephesians, is the phrase, in Christ. In Christ. You see it over and over again. There's a couple times even in this passage here. As believers, we are now in Christ. He is the atmosphere in which we operate. He is the context in which we live. We are His body, and He is our head. We are surrounded at all times, infused by and marinating in His love and His grace wherever we go, and no one can ever... Pull us out of Him. We are in Christ. But the reverse is also true. Christ is in us. Because His Holy Spirit is living inside of us and the Holy Spirit is forming the character of Jesus in us as we continue to trust Him and yield to Him and obey Him as He teaches us and leads us. And Christ lives His life then in us and through us. And what does that look like? What do you think it would look like if Jesus were living His life through you? Well, what did Jesus' life look like? Peter, Peter gives us a really good summary in a sermon in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. He says, Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil because God was with him. If Jesus is living inside of you and you are walking around in the course that God set up for you before the day even started, then you will go around doing good and healing all those who are oppressed by the devil because God is with you and Jesus is in you. So, how do we change our ways? Well, strictly speaking, we don't. He does. It's His power. It's His initiative. It's His plan. What do we do? We trust Him. We trust in Him. He revolutionizes our lives and as we follow Him on the path that He's already prepared for us. And all of this, Paul says, is from Him. God runs this show from start to finish. Now there's one other really cool thing. Notice how it says in that, uh, that verse 210, our, our VBS verse this year, by the way, it says that we are his workmanship. We're his workmanship. His, in Greek, it's we are his poema. 
It's the word from which we get our word poem. Christian, you know what? You are God's work of art. You are God's work of art. You are God's masterpiece. You are not just becoming one. You are one, it says here. You are a masterpiece, and you are unique. No one else, no one else in this universe has the same path as you to walk around in. No one else has the exact same gift mix. No one else has the exact same calling. No one else has the exact same surroundings, the exact same sphere of influence. No one else has the same mission field that you have. It's yours. Now you say, okay, that's cool, but I don't really feel very much like a finished work. I feel kind of like a work in progress. All right? Yeah, you are, and so am I. But think of it this way. Think of it this way. The mold of the perfect you has already been formed. Fill in your name. The mold of the perfect you has already been formed. And God, by the Holy Spirit, is pouring Jesus into that mold. He's pouring Jesus into you until one day you will be full of Jesus, but you will still be uniquely shaped as you. You don't have to make up your own identity, folks. You don't have to make up your own identity. You're a new creation. God has given you your new identity at the new creation. He's already designed you, designed you as a new creature. The mold is set. And Jesus is filling you up so that he can live through you as you go around doing good and undoing the work of the devil in this fallen world for people that God still loves. So that's the sermon for today. Amen. Now, I'm going to take it one step further, and I want to give you kind of an epilogue today. I'm going to give you some bonus material because tonight is the annual meeting of First Alliance Church, and I know that you are all coming, and I know that you're all going to want to be thinking about this. We have seen today, because I want you to think about the church, we have seen today that God has a course planned out for your life in which you walk around doing good to people that Jesus is doing through you, right? But what is the role of the church? What is the role of us in all that? What is the role of First Alliance in all that? That is a question that we as your elders talk about all the time. And I can tell you one part of the answer for sure, and it's a part that First Alliance does pretty well most of the time. I can tell you, I can tell you what's supposed to happen, what's supposed to be happening right now. I can tell you what's supposed to be happening when we gather together for worship and for teaching and for fellowship and either on a Sunday morning or on other times during the week when we get together in smaller groups for whatever reason and whatever capacity. Hebrews 10 tells us what's going on. Hebrews 10 tells us the reason that we get together with each other, the reason we gather as a church together is to provoke each other. Now, some of you might say, I love provoking people. That's what I, that's, that's what I, I love to do. Well, it's a special kind of provoking one another. We're supposed to provoke one another to, guess what? You know what it says? Love and good deeds. That sounds an awful lot like Ephesians 2.10, doesn't it? So we get together to make Ephesians 2.10 more of a reality in which we live our lives. So I want you to think of yourself now a little bit differently. I want you to think of yourself as a big can of soda. All right, that's you. Only the kind of soda you are, you're kind of like a big can of carbonated Jesus, Okay. This is a weird illustration. But I want you to think about yourself like that, okay? And our job on Sunday morning and other times we get together in small groups or wherever, D groups, is to shake each other up. All right, that's what I'm doing right now. I am trying to shake you up. I'm trying to, I'm trying to stir up the Jesus that's inside of you by the Holy Spirit. We get together and we shake each other's soda cans up. Why? So that on Monday morning, when you go to work or school or the gym or wherever, when you pull the flip top, what happens? Jesus comes flying out of you and gets all over everyone you're with. 
That's why it's bad to skip church. Because you never get shaken up. And your soda goes flat and it loses its fizz. And when you open it up on Monday morning, nothing comes out. When the church is gathered, we stir each other up so that when the church is scattered during the week, we're still First Alliance Church. But we are loving and serving and sharing Jesus with the people of Davidson County and other places too. That's the idea. But, and I'll close with this. Question. I'll close with the question. Is there another dimension to this? What I mean is, does God also have a plan, a course laid out, if you will, not just for the individual members of First Alliance Church, but for First Alliance Church of Lexington as a whole? Is there a unique path that he has prepared for us collectively to walk together? Is there a First Alliance-shaped Jesus that our community is supposed to encounter not just as individuals, but as a group? If so, what does that look like? What are our good deeds? What is our course? Now, this is not a rhetorical question. This is not just, oh yeah, definitely. No, this is a question that we think about a lot. This is a question that I want you to think about. Okay? What does is, what is a First Alliance-shaped Jesus look like if there is one? And what is it supposed to be doing? And what is our role? And how has God made us a collective work of art, a collective masterpiece? Okay, take some time to think about that one. We'll talk about it some tonight. Okay, let's pray. Let me ask you to stand. We'll pray and be, and be dismissed.